For many musicians, musical instruments are central to a performer's sense of identity and self-expression. Observers of virtuosic performances, from classical to popular music, have often commented on the musical instrument as an appendage or extension of the musician's body. But what happens when we strip away the instrument, leaving the exposed, vulnerable body of the musician as the interpreter of musical expression? How do gendered and racialized bodies impact the sonification of musical performances? Every August, performers from around the world gather in Oulu, Finland to compete in front of adoring fans at the Air Guitar World Championships, where air guitarists imitate, parody, and reanimate pre-recorded music. In fact, the one constant among the diverse performances encountered at an air guitar competition is the absence of a physical musical instrument. Air guitar is not their guitar. Remember, these people have traveled thousands of miles to do nothing for 60 seconds. You're listening to Ethnomusicology Today, a podcast produced by the Society of Ethnomusicology devoted to the exploration of contemporary issues in global music studies. I'm Trevor Harvey. Nothing wrong with being an idiot, and am I right, Alun? In this episode, we talk with two scholars, Sidney Hutchinson and Bird McDaniel, each having conducted research on embodied performances of identity that emerge within competitive air guitar performances. In talking with Sydney about her 2016 article, Asian Fury, A Tale of Race, Rock, and Air Guitar, we discuss the history and context of air guitar competitions. You attended the Air Guitar World Championships in Oulu, Finland in 2009. Tell us about that experience. What is an international air guitar competition like? It's, it's truly an amazing experience to have, and I'd recommend it for anyone. So it's basically a three-day event um, for those who choose to go for the whole thing. The first day consists of the high-altitude training camp, which this is one of these very Finnish sorts of jokes because, of course, Oulu is at sea level um, near the Arctic Circle. So they have the high-altitude training camp where air guitarists can go to hone their skills. Um, the second day... Is mostly free time for socializing. And in the evening, there's the dark horse competition where anybody can come and enter. And uh, if they pass through that round, then they will be able to compete on the world stage the following night. So then the third day is when the actual um, competition takes place. And it's preceded by um, a kind of whole ritual that includes the Air Guitar World Peace Parade through downtown Oulu, which ends up on the market square um, where the stage is set up for the competition. And it will be filled with thousands of Finns and um, visitors, international visitors who have maybe followed their international champions there. And uh, that's where the final competition takes place. Why Finland? What's the history here? What actually happened was that in Oulu, there was a music video festival for many years. And then um, one day... uh, some local kind of rock music enthusiasts, including Tapo Launonen, got together and said, well, why don't we have an air guitar competition as part of the music video festival? And first they said, uh, so this will be the national air guitar championships. And then they started looking around and they realized that there weren't any other air guitar championships. So they called it the World 
air guitar championships, even though the first year uh, it was almost all Finns competing. And he said there was maybe one Swede and a French guy who was studying in Olu at the time. They thought, well, that's international enough. So they called it the Air Guitar World Championships. And after a few years, it started getting some media attention. People found out about it and just loved the idea and um, started actually sending people from national championships that were being held all over the world to Olu. But the format of the competition is basically there are two rounds of competition. In each of them, every air guitarist only has one minute to perform. And the first round is whatever song the air guitarists have chosen on their own and usually edited down to that one minute. And they've prepared ahead of time. They've rehearsed. They've thought about costuming. They've thought about choreography. They've probably been practicing for many months before the competition. So that that is the first round. The second round is uh, it's called the compulsories and there is a song that's been chosen ahead of time in secret by the judges and the organizers and everyone has to um, compete to the same song. So in in essence they kind of have to improvise. And and so how are these um, competitions judged? Yeah, this is another one of the fantastic aspects about international air guitar competition is that they came up with uh, three categories in which the competitors are judged. So there's technique, stage presence, and airness. Technique and air guitar, many people wonder how can there be technique, but it's that it has to look convincing. It has to look more or less like they're playing a guitar, even though it's going to be in a very exaggerated form and they will do some things that wouldn't be f- physically possible with a real guitar. There should be some correspondence between what you see and what you're hearing. Um, stage presence includes both kind of the, char- the charisma of the performer, their facial expressions, as well as choreography and kind of stage craft. Then airness is really where you get to the essence of the competition. And this is a word that they used in English from 1996 onwards, from the very beginning. And um, they sort of wanted to use this word to express the ineffable quality of performance that we all know and can't quite pinpoint. We know when we see a great performance, but we can't always describe why that was a great performance. So U.S. Air Guitar has tried to sort of define this more precisely. And they say that airness is what takes air guitar out of the realm of merely imitating an actual guitar and into uh, being an art form of its own. So you're talking there a lot about community and this community aspect being um, really an important draw to air guitar performers. And you talk about in your article this idea of a core air ideology um, that is shared among international air guitarists. So tell us about those air values. So this is also another thing that was part of the original vision from Tapo Launonen and his um, sort of collaborators back in the 1990s that um, really other air guitarists around the world have adopted and taken up as their own. And as with everything in air guitar, it's both serious and silly. It's both ironic and sincere. Part of the thing was that it was uh, going to be a pacifist endeavor that would bring about world peace because, as Tapo said, if you are holding a air guitar, you cannot also be holding a machine gun. And that was a joke, but they also take it seriously, even as they know it's a joke, because it, of course, who, who wouldn't like to have world peace? Air guitarists would love to have world peace. And if they can contribute to it by playing air guitar, they are very happy to do so. And that's actually part of the event that takes place in the market square in Olu. Just before the comp- comp- competition begins, there's some city official will get up on stage and read this proclamation of world peace for, for, for air guitarists. Today, if all the people in the world played the air guitar, all wars would end, climate change would stop, and all bad things would disappear. 
It does not matter whether you come from Europe, Asia, Africa, America, or Australia, what the color of your skin is, or whether you are rich or poor. The message of Air Guitar is universal and the same for everyone. It's not about money, nor is it about power. It is about companionship, goodwill, and the right kind of attitude. It is about world peace, friendships, and nations out of a clean earth. The spirit prevailing in Oulu dictates that anyone taking a stand against world peace must be ordered to pick up an air guitar and allow himself to be carried away by the music. For we all know that no evil can be spread by anyone playing air guitar. So here is a message to all of you here in Oulu at the 22nd Air Guitar World Championships and everyone around the world. Pick up your air guitar, take a deep breath, and be inspired. May the playing of air guitar for world peace continue! The aspect of the visual seems to be really what um, is core here, which is, of course brings us, I think, to one of the, the interesting aspects of air guitar, right? It, it is about a physical and visual performance of which these performers are not actually creating the music itself. So can you talk a little bit about the music, though? What, what music drives this and then how, how the performers and audiences respond to air guitar as a, as a musical um, performance? So there are certain forms of rock that are favored um, in air guitar competition. And I think in part, it's because those forms of rock, rock that are more physical. Um, so for instance, like indie rock, there's a lot of shoegazing and not a lot of physical expression. And it's kind of known for that. That's part of um, what makes indie rock indie rock <laughs> um, in contrast to like metal or hardcore or something that really involves a lot of physical energy being expressed by the performers. Um, and so those are the styles that air guitarists tend to gravitate to. And um, yeah, I think it's really about the embodiment of music and how fans embody music, even though they're not playing it and the kinds of knowledge that fans have about music, even though they don't play it. Bird McDaniel, a doctoral student at Brown University, also researches air guitarists' embodiment of music. In his article, Out of Thin Air, Configurability, Choreography, and the Air Guitar World Championships, he relies in part on his own experience of performing choreographed routines in air guitar competitions. I confirmed he has not competed before, but this is no joke. This guy did his thesis on air guitar. That's why he is the professor air. Yeah. How has your participation as an air guitar performer, and obviously coming to that as an ethnomusicologist as well, how has that shaped your understanding of the embodiment and the, the power of, of wielding this invisible instrument in a musical performance setting. Air guitar is really, really hard to play. I didn't think it would be. I play guitar, and so I play real guitar, or their guitar, as it's referred to in the air guitar community. And I've played for about you know, 15 years, but learning to play air guitar involves unlearning to play their guitar. In other words, air guitar doesn't maintain some fidelity to real guitar mechanics. You're not actually playing chords or finger picking with precision or finding the right place on the on the fret for uh, whatever note you're playing 
air guitar playing is its own instrument. And so I quickly discovered, you know, I play guitar, I play the air guitar with a pick. I quickly discovered that I needed to use finger picking to play air guitar because it translates much better to audiences. I figured out that higher notes should always be closer to the body and lower notes should always be further down the neck. Even though that's not true for their guitar playing, it's necessary to communicate a uh, heightening of intensity. So I basically learned these mechanics of the air guitar by playing in front of a mirror. I filmed myself playing air guitar and then I critiqued my own performances and I performed at the Boston Hard Rock Cafe last year as the professor. It's my air guitar name. I did really well on the the in the first round. Uh, I was destroyed in the second round. I don't have a lifetime of experience improvising an air guitar solo on the fly. And so I found that really, really hard. And uh, I was humbled by the, the greatness of my fellow air guitarists. In addition to speaking with Sydney and Bird about their research, I also had the opportunity to speak with Fatima Huang, who is featured in Sydney's article. Fatima, who goes by the stage name The Rockness Monster, was winner of the 2005 U.S. Air Guitar Championship and the U.S. representative that same year at the Air Guitar World Championships in Oulu. Thank you, uh, Fatima, for making time to talk with me. Um, your performances are very physical. And, and what, one thing that's interesting to me about that is how that exists within this performance about air guitar. I, it, the, the physical instrument is not present, right? The thing that connects the musician on stage with a sound that's transmitted is not even there. My wife is in photography and installation art, and she has a background in dance and theater. So she helped me a lot in terms of my stage presence. In talking about this as an art form, we were continually trying to push the boundaries of what it means to air guitar. One's first idea is air guitar is mimicking the actions or the movements of, of the guitar, of playing the guitar. And when someone does that note for note, you quickly realize, like, this is really boring. Because minus a few people like the Dillinger Escape Plan, you can't do much craziness while playing a guitar because you have to play this guitar. And so when you remove yourself from that idea conceptually, it's like, okay, I'm not playing a guitar. I can do whatever I want. It becomes a dance. And my thought is I was always playing the essence of the song. In bringing, playing the essence of the song, you're free to do whatever. I was going towards a direction where I was playing songs with no guitars. Because like, what's the point of playing... An air, like a, an air guitar is so far removed from playing a guitar that I might as well remove myself that much further from playing an air guitar. Like, why do I need to play a song with a guitar if I'm just dancing effectively? So I, I have this routine where uh, this band Judd Judd, uh, it's two dudes playing what they call acapella hardcore, which, which is just sort of the mouth chugging. And I, I have a routine with that where it's like I've removed myself from an actual guitar sound. So much of instrument playing is about the theatrics of playing the instrument, the simulation of labor, the... You know, I think guitar playing involves this combination of pretending like it's really hard to play guitar, but nonetheless pretending that, like that labor is pleasurable and in some sense is also easy because one has mastered the guitar uh, to such a degree. Philip Oslander writes about guitar face and the way that guitar playing involves 
using the face of the guitarist to kind of communicate ideas about labor and pleasure to audiences. And I think air guitar essentially exposes that without the guitar present and in some ways about theatrics completely removed from the instrument itself. I mean, the whole joke is that people are simulating labor and pleasure, but there is no instrument that needs to be played. And so essentially the guitar would sound the same regardless of how hard they tried to play the air guitar. So I think it may point to the importance of understanding um, theatricality and gesture with respect to musical instruments and the fact that the way that we come to appreciate musical instrument playing is always connected with a kind of theater and theatricality of the body. So you start out at the beginning of your article with the description of 2014 Air Guitar World Championship performance by Eric Mean Moline. Can you just uh, describe that performance as you re- remember it? I was standing close to the stage and it was raining. And uh, the night before, I was talking to Eric about his plans. We'd gotten pizza at like, you know, 2 or 3 a.m. And he was saying sort of, you know, he was talking about how he was going to impale himself uh, with the air guitar and was sort of plotting out his 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 moves. And so when he took the stage, I was very nervous for him. And he had tried and unsuccessfully, uh, he had tried to depict his impalement before. And so in many ways, his performance stage was a reference to a previous failed air guitar performance. So he took the stage and and he plays air guitar, uh, and then all of a sudden he stops, he turns sideways, he holds the guitar in the air, and he turns it around such that the neck is facing his body, and then he pushes it through himself, and the music stops. And you get the sense that he has died, you know, he simulated his own death. And he freezes on stage, his body slouches, his hair dangles down by his chest, he sort of makes this, this look on his face as if he's sort of um, all the life has left his body. And then all of a sudden he reaches around, pulls the guitar out the backside of his body and gives it some powerful strums to end the performance. The thing that I think is so incredible about it is that it simulates this sort of, uh, you know, birth, death, resurrection story in which music has sort of like, you know, if you think of air guitars about consuming music there's a sense in which it became quite literal in that performance that he's sort of literally fusing his body with music that he's impaled himself with an air guitar, like in the sense they, they become one thing. And so he not only maintains the integrity of the air guitar as a kind of, um, imaginary instrument, but in some sense has also demonstrated this intimate connection between the music objectified through the air guitar and his body. So in air guitar, I think a really interesting thing happens when you remove the physical instrument from the equation, and then all the focus is placed on the body. There's no intermediary between the performer's body and the audience and um, the expression of the music. And so I think this is actually one of the things that enables air guitarists to use their performance as critique 
of traditional notions about rock and its um, kind of racialized and gendered meanings. There is an interesting line that air guitarists have to walk in their performance between being really sincere fans of the mu- of the music that they're performing to and expressing their love for that music, um, without which their performance couldn't be successful, but also showing that they know that there's something just inherently silly about being in a competition to play an instrument that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so when they're in that position, then it really forces them to think about um, how we perform the body in rock music specifically and how that has been so hyper-masculine and so also overwhelmingly white over the years that they're almost forced into a critique of it um, by having to rethink uh, what am I doing in this performance and what am I going to show with my body and how does it comment on what I already know of rock culture and what the audience also knows of rock culture. Unity and equality is one of the core values of this ideology, but you also pose the question in your uh, article of who is included and who is excluded in air guitar. And can you talk a, a little bit about this idea of uh, the title of your article is Asian Fury, right? So what is Asian Fury and how is this responding to this question of inclusion and exclusion? So everybody wants equality, but are they really achieving it? Are they, are they doing anything to bring it about through their practices? And I think this is a concern of many air guitarists and has been for many years in that um, it was certainly obvious to everyone in the early years that almost everyone competing was white and male. They didn't like this about about, about rock in general and, and air guitar specifically. They really wanted it to be more diversified and more inclusive. But how can it be when the fan culture on which it is built is already so heavily white male? So this is sort of a problem from the beginning. And still to this day, there have been almost no black competitors and very few Latino competitors. However, many Asian-American competitors were able to make successful interventions into this genre and were already participating in those fan cultures of, for instance, like hardcore, um, metal. And so Asian Fury is a construct that was devised by one particular air guitarist who went by the name of C. Diddy, and he uh, won the first U.S. national competition in 2003 and went on to win the world championships that year in Olu. His real name is David Jung. He's a Korean-American actor, comedian, Cornell graduate, (laughs) a little overeducated like many participants in this community. But uh, one of the things he was really interested in was in um, stereotypes of Asians and Asian-Americans and specifically like um, emasculating stereotypes of Asian and Asian-American men. And he had already been exploring this in stage shows like he was in a show with the... um, comedian, provocateur, Indonesian-American performer Kate Rigg, which was called Chinko-Rama, which, as you can tell from the title, explored stereotypes of of Asians that circulate in the U.S. And uh, he had already sort of come up with this character who went through a transformation from embodying the absolute worst stereotypes of Asian-Americans in a character that he called Chink Daddy. And, and was then transformed specifically through music to being this very powerful, very sexy uh, rock performer that was called C. Diddy mm-hmm. um, and had like a bevy of, of backup dancers kind of underlying his male potency in contrast to these emasculating stereotypes. 
So he'd already been exploring this idea for a while. So when he saw that um, there was going to be an opportunity to compete in air guitar championships in California where he lived, he knew he, he could use this as a platform for what he was trying to say. If you look back at the videos from that time of his performances, you see that the audience is kind of like shocked and also laughing uproariously from the minute they see him come out on stage and he's dressed in red kimono over uh, red floral leggings and he's made a Hello Kitty breastplate out of a child's backpack and, and he's got a sort of sash tied around his forehead sort of kung fu movie style all these stereotypes just really brought to the fore and in, in a really feminizing way with the flowery leggings and the kimono and everything um so audiences see him come out on stage and they're sort of shocked and they start laughing and then he starts his performance and he's just so masterful both in his technical precision like he's really hitting every note that you hear and in his embodiment of the rock star and really all of the sort of faces that we see rock stars making the power stances we see them taking and the command that he has over the audience and sort of demanding their adoration and they really respond and by the end everybody but he's going crazy. Um, so uh, in these performances, he says that he's, he's embodying this construct of Asian fury, which he says is a parody of the emasculation of the Asian male. What is the limit to the effectiveness of Asian fury? Well, I think that there's something productive in the discomfort that they can induce in audiences where the audience doesn't quite know what to make of it. Is it okay to laugh at this or should I not be laughing? Um, what's actually going on here? And there's always part of the audience that's new to air guitar competition that thinks, is this serious? Is this for real? Do they really mean this? They can't possibly really mean this. you know. So there's always this uh, kind of process going on in the audience who's watching, which I think is part of what makes it interesting. Um, in terms of Asian Fury and the, and the limits of Asian Fury, I think it was effective in the first couple of years of the U.S. being part of the competition and Asian, Asian American performers taking part. I think it was effective precisely because it was so shocking and new. Mm -hmm. And audiences hadn't really seen something like this before. And that if you see his performance, um, if you see C. Diddy's performance and the costume that he's wearing and everything he's doing on stage in terms of this perfect embodiment of a, a metal guitarist wearing this very feminized, stereotypical Asian attire... And you're confronted with that for the first time. It's very effective in um, jarring you into thinking about what it means that you've never seen an Asian perform rock music before and what it means that um, that we we have these very stereotypical notions about what Asianness is that don't really have anything to do with actual Asian cultures. Uh -huh. um, and audiences are forced to confront that. But after that shock value has has worn off, after people were used to see Diddy's performance and had seen it in numerous iterations because the film came out and it was all over the internet, and then his um, kind of one of his uh, friends and protégés, Miri Park, then um, also performed her own version of you know a woman's take on Asian Fury the next year, and also uh, ranked first in the in the world championships. After that, audiences were kind of used to it. The shock value wore off. And I think later Asian-American competitors, in some cases, felt a need to distance themselves from that. 
it was maybe not an effective critique anymore because there was the danger of it becoming kind of normalized or, and they, they were worried that audiences would then see them as, you know, just another funny Asian man. So after that, then it became important for some of them to just really show how hard they could rock. Um, I think my Asianness or Asian Americanness, it, it was a little different because um, the only really play on the Asian stereotype is, which wasn't totally intentional at first, but I really embraced it later, was my name, uh, The Rockness Monster, which if you sort of think about it, it's sort of that play with the Asian language with the R's and the L's, because then it's like the Loch Ness Monster and the maybe inability to say Loch Ness, so it becomes the Rockness Monster. Um, that's probably my only play on it, but I think maybe because my situation is a little different from um, C. Diddy's and Sonic Rocks being that I went to high school and college in Hawaii, which a lot of people say is post-race, um, where the dominant ethnic culture is Asian. And so rock and roll isn't this inherent white man's territory in Hawaii. The crowd is very diverse, mostly Asian, maybe like two-thirds Asian and then a third something, you know, everything else. And so in Hawaii, going to punk shows and hardcore shows, you don't really identify in terms of race in that sense. So I don't think I carried that baggage, but I just never really carried that initially. But as I competed and coming out of the, the era of C. Diddy and Sonic Rock, and then post me winning the nationals, it then became this more white male dominated, I guess, club. And then I think I did sort of, I reflected more on the, the fact that I am the other in this group. Um, but I also didn't, I tried not to play into it in, in that sense. My character, if I ever call it that, is the Rockness Monster. And I've always described the Rockness Monster as myself. Like, I am the Rockness Monster, the Rockness Monster is me, we are no different. And so when I did perform, it wasn't me trying to be something else. It was just like, this is me, this is, I'm bringing my ethic, my rock and roll ethic to this performance. And hopefully that can change whatever stereotype or idea, it, it comes preconceived when you see me. We've mostly been talking about this conflation of gendered stereotypes and racial stereotypes of the masculation of Asian men. What about these these women air guitarists uh, that you talk about and look at in your article? What are they bringing to these performances, both in terms of the the cultural critique that they're bringing, but also in terms of the embodiment issues? Uh, how are women's bodies positioned differently in these performances? Yeah, so I think it's kind of um, been through a similar trajectory as Asian Fury, where in the in the beginning there was a need to insert some shock value to make people notice that this was a problem, to make people notice that the exclusion of Asians, Asian Americans, or other non-white bodies from this space was not acceptable. The similar thing happened with women in air guitar performance. So in the early years of women competing in these events, 
you'll see a lot of humor used and a lot of kind of in-your-face jokes being made about what one one of the women performers called the sausage show of, of air guitar competition. <laughs> so you'll see, for instance, um, the year that I was in Olu, um, there's a competitor um, originally from Scotland but living in, in the U.S. who entered the Dark Horse competition and passed through to the final round, and she was competing under the name Zero Prospects. And um, <laughs> her, um, her outfit which she came up uh, herself was she was wearing kind of like a t-shirt and yellow jeans that were then tear away. And um, like halfway through the song, she tears away the jeans and underneath she's wearing um, men's tidy whities <laughs> with a jock strap. And on the back is inked make air not war. And so this was a very funny moment that shocked audiences and uh, noticing what she was wearing and what she was saying and uh, made her point clear about um, the exclusion of women from these competitions. And since then, you've seen more and more women competing and that um, don't always feel that they have to make a point Mm -hmm. of the fact that they are women competing. The earliest one to do this, though, was I think probably Mary Park in um, 2004, she decided to enter. She had been one of the backup dancers, actually, in the Chinkorama show that I mentioned earlier. And she's also very well known in New York as a B-girl. And um, so she dances, participates in in B-boy, B-girl events, uh, breakdancing under the name Seoul Sonic, Seoul, like the city in Korea, because she's Korean-American. And uh, when she decided to enter air guitar competition, she didn't know a lot about rock, but she received guidance from C. Diddy, who wanted to see her compete. And um, she came up with an outfit that was both a nod to kind of the infantilization of Asian women in a lot of sexualized content, where she wears a sort of modified Catholic schoolgirl uniform, but underneath she's wearing Hello Kitty underwear, which you can see at one point when she does a high kick. And there was a whole debate that swirled around her performance in Finland that year because some accused her of just using sex appeal to win the competition, whereas others said, aren't men doing the same thing? They're also wearing tight costumes and, you know, revealing outfits. So why shouldn't she be able to do the same? And then the controversy was furthered by the fact that uh, she was first announced the winner, and then there was there was a recount, and they announced that actually a different performer had beat her by a half point, and they decided that they would share the prize. And I think within air guitar, people often have to account for difference in complex ways. You know, I mean, I I bring up a few examples in the identity section of my article, and I talk about the sexism that women air guitarists face and the extent to which they consider essentially whether or not they want to kind of create a distinctly what I call a kind of strategic essentialist approach to air guitar, a distinctly kind of female air guitar style, or the extent to which they wish air guitar didn't reference gender at all. Also, um, 
I mentioned Andres uh, Segovier, the air guitarist who um, performed in a chair and uh, called it chair guitar. He sort of felt like he needed to account for his mobility issues. You know, he, he was sort of aware that people would have these ableist assumptions that they would structure the way that they saw his performances. And so he was very much invested in grappling with those and also kind of um, flaunting expectations. And so that's something you see like both in, in Sydney's examples as well. People often feel like they have a to account for difference on stage, and that can can be a powerful way to contest those norms and can also be a way to kind of exoticize difference. I think everyone sort of takes the the whole mantra of world peace differently. Some people sort of cast it off, but I feel like yes the the the, the idea of like if you're holding an air guitar, you can't hold a gun is very true, but it's sort of this this sort of joking sort of statement. But I think what is more real about air guitar and community is that, especially here in the United States, we've developed a community where we get together once a year and it feels a lot like summer camp. And there's this camaraderie that really brings all sorts of people together. And that is something, something that you can like really grab a, grab a hold on to that is like, this is real. Like This in terms of if everyone got together and played air guitar and like this community got to the scale of a state or a country like everyone is everyone's friend you know like we're competitive in competition we i often say i don't compete to lose you know it's like but i'm here to have fun with everyone it's it's a lot of fun and in that spirit i think the world peace part of air guitar can definitely be achieved Sydney Hutchinson is an associate professor of music history and cultures at Syracuse University. She has published several books and articles on topics pertaining to music, dance, and gender, especially relating to the traditions of the Dominican Republic, the U.S.-Mexico border region, and salsa dancing. Her article, Asian Fury, A Tale of Race, Rock, and Air Guitar, can be found in the fall 2016 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. Bird McDaniel is a doctoral candidate in ethnomusicology at the Department of Music at Brown University. His article, Out of Thin Air, Configurability, Choreography, and the Air Guitar World Championships can be found in the fall 2017 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. His subsequent article, Air Apparent, Amplifying the History of Airplane, Air Guitar, and Air Bands in the United States, is forthcoming from the journal American Quarterly. Ethnomusicology Today is produced with the help and support of many people. Thanks to our student research and production assistants, Ross Clauser and Todd Johnson, consulting editor, Harry Berger, and our advisory board members, Portia Maltby, Lesquet, Martin Stokes, David Kaminsky, and Leon Garcia Corona. Additional support and encouragement has been provided by former SEM First Vice President, Travis Jackson, current SEM First Vice President, Judith Gray, and SEM Executive Director, Stephen Stimfley. Special thanks to the Air Guitar World Championships and the musicians whose music was featured in this episode, including Michael Monroe for his song TNT Diet, Fun 2 for his recording of Canon Rock, and Judd Judd. This podcast is produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology in collaboration with KRUI and with support from the University of Iowa College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates. Music